you know, it seems as though Christianity, along with, you know, all of the world religions, if you look back historically, have journeyed um, as inseparable partners with the body politic um, from its conception until now. You know, mm. Being a person of faith, politics is unavoidable, I guess, if you will. So how do we how do we talk about God and talk about politics without mutually binding them together? Or is that even possible? So I, I, I mean, I perhaps I take slightly controversial view on this, but I, I don't, I don't think it's possible. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Crump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Luke Brotherton. He is the professor of moral and political theology at Duke Divinity School. Dr. Brotherton has authored several books, including Resurrecting Democracy, Christianity and Contemporary Politics, and Christ and the Common Life. His work has appeared in The Guardian, The Times, and The Washington Post. He's also the host of the Listen, Organize, and Act podcast. Uh, Dr. Brotherton, thank you for joining the conversation. And it's, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Now, we have to give special thanks to Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry, who, uh, after being interviewed by me, recommended that we reach out to you on the podcast. So I don't know if that means for, for a plus for me. I don't know if that for you means you need to reach out to give them and uh, give them a stern talking to. <laughs> no, I'll, t- I'll take I'll take any praise or recommendations from them. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. 
So, you know, looking through kind of your uh, your PhD work and certainly what you teach on, I'm, I'm always fascinated when I talk to academics on why they chose the particular field and field of mm -hmm. thought. Um, so, so what was it about um, ethics and morality and, and politics as, as it comes to an intersection of theology for you? That's a good question. I, I have a slightly circuitous route to ending up in academia. I never intended to be an academic. I, I left university and it was just, uh, I'm of an age when the Berlin Wall kind of fell, fell in the middle of my university career. And I ended up after a kind of year or so doing other things, but I ended up, um, I, I'd actually worked in parliament. And then from that, I ended up working for a charity based in Eastern Europe. Well, I was based in London and, and going back and forth. And that was working with churches in that context who were trying to rebuild what was then kind of post-communist society. And this was a context in which you had really the, the kind of, it had seen the death of the European Marxist project, to put it in kind of grand terms. But you can take that really as meaning the idea that uh, there would be a, an entirely secular, religion-free um, utopia would be brought about by imminent political means. And in the wake of that, every religion under the sun from, you know, you can name them all, including many evangelical missionary groups, were in trying to kind of convert the, the, the communist heathen um, to their particular ways. And there was also a context in which there was the kind of legacies of of state-run socialist structures and a kind of turbocharged, take-no-prisoners capitalism that was, you know, privatizing everything and creating huge inequalities in society. Uh, combined with that, you had the rise of ethno-religious nationalism, uh, particularly obviously in the former Yugoslavia and the war really emerged over my time working in that context, a brutal civil war. You know, we saw concentration camps again for the first time in Europe since the Second World War, uh, all driven by political theologies, really. Um, and then also you saw the rise of kind of kleptocratic, ideology-free populist leaders like Mechiar, Milosevic, and then obviously later people like Putin. So in some ways it felt, you know, the world's, as we've come to see it, um, really was was being born in that context. And I was thinking, how on earth does the church navigate this kind of context? And I thought, well, someone must have written on this. And it turned out the cupboard was a bit empty. Um, and so that I kind of fell into doing, someone said, oh, it sounds like you should do, a, I had a whole bunch of questions. Someone said, oh, it sounds like you should do a PhD. So I kind of fell into doing that and always intended to go back into either policy related to work or NGO work. And then my supervisor uh, was away and I took, taught his classes for a year and uh, kind of fell in love with teaching. So that's kind of ended up in the academic stream. But I've always tried to think about this question of the relationship between Christianity and politics and then particularly how Christians can engage contexts of division and hyperdiversity constructively. We can all, all tell bad stories about how that relationship goes. But I'm, and then I'm also been always interested in thinking about how you do think about that from the ground up. How are Christians already doing that constructively? And what happens when we try and bring the resources of the tradition, a kind of broad range of frames of reference to bear upon how Christians are navigating this and make sense of that and interpret it and understand it theologically and, and can generate a constructive theological response out of actual 
really what, what's what's already going on on the ground that points to or witnesses to constructive possibilities that aren't often that legible in the church, let alone in the broader society. So sounds like easy lifting. Uh, <laughs> or, I mean, you, sounds like you enjoy the the challenge of, uh, you know, unpacking the chaos of what was and uh, trying to figure out what what is, you know, going to be are, are you an adrenaline junkie then do you enjoy <laughs> jumping into the unknown for other things it's uh, well i was i think theology and philosophy for that matter always it always begins this is a kind of point plato makes always begins from a place of wonder it begins faith seeking understanding if if what 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 don't i know what is going on here that's the kind of great first ethical question is what's going on here i, I always sometimes joke that you know to my my students that they 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 know they're in trouble when they ask Lenin's question, which is what is to be done, uh, which is he writes this famous pamphlet just for the Russian Revolution, because what is to be done, uh, before you ask Marvin Gaye's question, the greatest album of the 20th century, is what's going on, and uh, that's the first ethical, and I would say political question is to ask what's going on, and that's really the beginning of philosophy and theology. We we don't ask what's going on. We we're not interested or or curious about you know, what we don't know and what we don't understand, then there is no theology, there is no philosophy, there is no thinking about the meaning and purpose of things, there is no res meaningful response to how are we going to act together, because we haven't actually tried to work out where we're at um, in the first instance. Mm. be fascinating. Obviously, we're, it's not what we're sitting down to talk about today, but, you know, we seem to be at an intersection where some of the major world powers that be very much like when you were organizing um, your PhD uh, research and, and thinking is this seems to be a shift and alteration, you know, where uh, many of the world leaders are along the world leaders, but other nations have risen up to become kind of the more dominant and predominant powers in the world. And what, what's going to happen in the vacuum of that, um, mm. you know, United States, Great Britain, among uh, many others that no longer seem to be at their status that they once were. Um, and, and how do we look at that from a theological angle? Uh, yeah. Certainly, <laughs> that, that leads into a lot of conversations about uh, Christian nationalism, but uh, that's another right. topic for another time. But um, you, you well, also... I think, I mean, I think just, I mean, just on that, I it's, I mean, it's funny, you, you, because you mentioned the Listen, Organize Act podcast, um, this isn't a kind of surreptitious plug for that, but it, but actually I, I'm just doing the second season where I begin that with um, an episode on Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. And it's an interesting because it's a very ancient text, obviously, but in, in that there's this famous dialogue between the Athenians and Melians that people in community organizing and, and training people for kind of grassroots democratic politics have often used to teach about the relationship between politics and power but there's a kind of broader point in in Thucydides history where he's the whole history is obviously based around this war and it's all about the emergent power of Athens over against the established power of uh, Sparta and the kind of really what's fascinating about it is is Thucydides is really meditating on how did Athenian democracy destroy itself it was one way to read as a kind of tragic story and he he looks at how the Athenians, by engaging in imperial projects or kind of reckless forms of war abroad, end up bringing war home and destroying their own democracy because they start treating each other 
as if they're in war. Like war just infects everything about social life together. And so politics becomes, you've got to win by any means necessary, no matter how dirty your hands, and this kind of deep factionalism and polarization. And it's it's remarkable, it feels like very prescient to our contemporary experience, both in, in Britain and America. And I think that we often talk about the Christian nationalist conversations, but I think the broader international context and the fact that we've been at war for you know 20 plus years isn't tempted to be factored in it's, it's all treated as if it's an internal dynamic and that, that'd be some of my pushback to philip and sam perry's work um philip gorski and sam perry's work so i think that that broader context needs factoring in as to how all societies and i think this is a perennial issue can kind of destroy themselves internally through how they begin to reimagine themselves in a kind of permanent state of war. Well, I always like for my guests to push back on each other, and then eventually I bring them all on to have a conversation <laughs> that I get to sit back and witness. But tell us a little bit more about the the Listen, Organize, and Act podcast. Yeah, so that's that that grew out of. I mean, actually, I teach a course at Duke called Listen, Organize, Act, and it's really to help students. I think there's a big issue in how we imagine and understand pastoral leadership in often as either wholly focused on congregations or we kind of derive our models from psychological training or counseling or this is what pastoral care involves and of course the older vision of the pastor you know whether the old testament new testament um, the ancient world the the king imagined as a kind of shepherd figure was, was a form of political rule and we don't tend to take seriously the political public dimensions of ministry and how both that understanding the congregation as a body politic and how the congregation is itself navigating and building a common life with others in its locality where, where it's based. And the course derives from community organizing work. It's something I've researched and written on and been very involved in this kind of form of grassroots um, politics of the common life, really, is what I'd call it. And drawing lessons from that and other forms of kind of grassroots, small d, democratic politics, so trying, and connecting that to various understandings of political theology, trying to help students think through how, as Christian leaders working in congregational settings or in various forms of Christian mission and ministry, they can take seriously a political public dimension of what they're doing and understand that's always shaping uh, congregational life together and the life of the congregation or ministry in relation to its neighbors um and and so the the first season is really a kind of how to engage in that kind of politics and then second season I'm, I'm looking at various understandings of democracy and how that connects into political theology and and kind of trying to set out we tend to when we tend to think about democracy we tend to think about what takes place in dc or state capitals or appears on our new news feeds and this vision of democracy is really about negotiating a common life between those who are like me and unlike me and and here's a very very fundamental kind of insight which i think we've kind of lost a, a, a theological commitment to which is what to and this goes back to my experiences in eastern europe what do I do when I meet someone I disagree with or dislike or find scandalous or difficult or threatening in some way? I can really do one of four things. I can either kill them, and obviously that's a, an option we see around us in the world today. I can 
coerce them or create a system to coerce them and dominate them so I don't have to listen to them I don't have to take seriously what they say or I can make life so difficult that I cause them to flee and obviously you've got a mon monumental refugee problem so that's a, another very prevalent option or I can do the fourth thing which is politics I can navigate and negotiate some kind of common life amid differences of power and competing visions of the good life and without killing, coercing, uh, or causing others to flee. And those really are the only four options. We get very complicated and do political sciences and the other, but that, that's really it. That's really it. And I think Christians, for very good, both theological and practical reasons, should be pretty committed to doing politics rather than the other three options. And in related to that then is, if I'm going to treat others, uh, you know, as, as political, opponents rather than killing coercing or causing them to flee I have to have some sense of their dignity of they're made in the image of God even if they're not Christian or I disagree with them and that sense then of what does it mean what does it mean to be made in the image of God is as someone uh, who should have some agency in shaping the world around them through shared worlds of meaning and action how do we talk together act together I can't be me unless I can kind of act with you and talk with you. And that, I think, is really the fundamental nature of small d democratic politics, that everyone should have some agency in shaping their living and working conditions. Um, and whether that's in the firm or in your neighborhood or wherever. And, and what's the role of Christians in enabling and defending that possibility? And that's really the second season kind of looks at that understanding of democracy and kind of over, you know, in dialogue with some key figures um, like Ella Baker and and um, a num number of others who've kind of tried to live that out on the ground and teach people how to do that on the ground. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the kind of second season. So it's what I'm hope for the for the rock It's really a, a kind of in some ways a, 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 an accessible version of, of the right, more academic writings spell out this vision which I think we've lost sight of of the role of Christians and the centrality of a vocation in neighbor love to really defend and tend this politics of a common life through democratic means and um yeah so the 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 podcast really lays that out in interviews with people on the ground who are doing this how are they doing it what does it mean how do they make sense of it some of the challenges they face so it's a very kind of lived version of these this idea and I, I assume you do it with a, a London accent. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm the I'm the native English speaker. Most of the other people are from a different parts of the States. So you get a variety of the wonderful hues of regional accents from around the States. Well, I mean, just as our American listeners would be like, well, yeah, I'm going to listen to it because it's a British guy talking in a British accent. So, um, yeah, I, I'd love to turn our attention to uh, your most recent work, Christ and mm -hmm. the Common Life. This is a critical examination at the intersection of theology and politics, faith and democracy. You wrote, over time, the relationship between the theological and political concept became a thicket of entangled ideas. As Christianity became more widely spread and influential, theological categories and concepts were used to theorize political life. To complicate matters further, theological uses of political terms were then borrowed back understanding political life but still the imprint of their theological meaning embedded within them take us back to the the conception of this book what, what was going on mm. in the world in your research and your teaching that that led you to write this work well so echoing somewhat what i was saying about the podcast is i became very concerned 
you know, this was emerging prior to 2016 and, and the Trump-Clinton election, um, and really going back to the early to mid 2000s, uh, the sense that when Christians tend to talk about politics and think about politics and political theology, there are a number of stories that tended to come into operation. Either politics was a dirty business, Christians shouldn't be involved in politics or somehow we should should kind of rise above it. Um, and I think you hear echoes of that somehow in, in sort of like Tim Keller's written influential piece on kind of Bible and justice and politics. Um, so that sense of we should stand above the fray. Um, and I was like, well, we've kind of got skin in the game. You know, we are, whether we like it or not, political actors. There's there's no kind of standing above it. We have to navigate this common life with others, um, whether we like it or not. But then also a sense of uh, politics dominated by a national you know, what went on in DC or state capitals was the only form of politics. And that's one form of politics. I would call it statecraft. Um, it's about how to, who competition for and use of the structures of governments and, and things like laws and policy and, and that kind of thing. And, and obviously elections are part of that, but that's all part of the apparatus of statecraft. But that, that tends to dominate people's imagination. And I found that with my students doing workshops with clergy around the place. Um, and then, then there was this other story of somehow the world is going to hell in a handcart and there are left-wing versions of this and right-wing versions of this. It tended to take a kind of apocalyptic view. Either we need to form a Benedict option and form a little holy huddle, this kind of right-wing version, and protect the church against the secularizing, relativizing forces of liberalism. Or, you know, neoliberalism taking everything. We're just in a kind of inherently white supremacist society. And, and these are kind of Manichaean, either-or, friend-enemy uh, uh, stories which divide the world up into goodies and baddies and we don't need to listen to each other because I already know you know according to some ideological checklist whether you're a friend or an enemy so there's no real listening going on there's no real politics it's ideological thinking rather than political thinking so whether it's the kind of oh you know we stand above the fray or politics is you know just a dirty business uh, best done by other people or you know this highly ideological polarizing thinking and I thought we've completely lost a rich, rich tradition of political thought in, in Christianity over two millennia and in dialogue with a variety of other approaches to understanding politics. And, and then related to that, lost any sense of a, of a sense of what democracy was. And I, and I was very struck by a parallel with the 1920s and 30s. And when you had a whole slew of people like Reinhard Niebuhr, William Temple in England, Jacques Maritain in France and the States, and, and many others writing these defenses of democracy in response to the rise of fascism and the rise of communism, and a similar set of responses in the church of a failure to reckon with the times we were living in, and uh, and a need for a more robust language and a recovery of a of a way of thinking about politics that wasn't simply um, being dictated to by highly polarized, highly partisan, more you know paranoid politics of the left or the right. Uh, and what would a more sober, theologically grounded, richer uh, understanding of politics entail? So that was. That was my sense. I thought we need something in that mode that, that kind of can make sense of a different way of imagining and making sense of politics, particularly democratic politics, in a moment when there's a lot at stake. And also, 
you know, political theology is not this obscure thing with, you know, obviously the alignment between Trump and and um, various evangelical groups or, um, you know, we can see in Russia the, the alignment of Putin and, and the uh, Russian Orthodox Church and all over the place or both Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, you see this alignment and echoing what I'd seen in Eastern Europe of alignment between religion and, and ethno um, kind of ethnic nationalism nationalisms of various kinds it that was my sense was the need to write something that rendered a, a politics of the common life plausible possible and the alternative to these deeply destructive understandings of politics that were ripping through the churches and and ripping apart congregations in my own context brexit and um, that kind of thing so there was this deep polarizations people couldn't avoid politics it was dividing families dividing the church and and we needed yes clergy and others seem to have very little resources for speaking into that um kind of context so that that was the motivating energy for the book this podcast is presented to you by cbf church benefits at CBB, your benefits are our ministry. Did you know that CBB offers every participant an opportunity to create a comprehensive financial plan with a certified financial planner at Empower Retirement, free of charge? Learn more about completing your financial plan at churchbenefits.org backslash financial planning. As an incentive for our ordained participants, CBB will apply $500 to your retirement account when you complete a financial plan. It's a small grant-funded way we can invest in your future. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefit services, and financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. In the book, you describe um, politics as a way of organizing relational power as a creational good. Take us a little deeper there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we, again, we we tend to think about politics. We, we assume politics necessarily involves power. And we shouldn't think of power as a scary term. It just means agency, the ability to act. And uh, the, nothing can happen. Justice and love can't happen in the world without your ability to act with and for others. So that takes power. Just, you've got to act. Um, so what are the means of acting or the means of agency? Those are the different kinds of power we can draw on to act. And we when we say the word power we tend to think about the what we might call kind of unilateral power or power over um that's kind of command and control forms of bureaucratic power think about orders in an army um really how the state operates tends to operate with with forms of unilateral power but that isn't the only form of power and obviously that's the form of power 
which you know my academic friends and if you read lots of critical theory you'll get very concerned about forms of unilateral power and how that points you towards various systems and structures but if you only focus on unilateral power and the systems and structures for um, enacting it you miss there's this other kind of power power with or relational power whether that's think about a trade union or a family or a congregation the better the quality and character of our relationships with each other the more there's trust and the more we're able to act with each other and for each other and therefore the more power there is the greater is our ability to act it's not a zero-sum game if I have more power you have less power the more relational power there is the more anyone can act and the more we are enhanced each in our agency through the relational power that lies between us and there are a number of theorists of this in the modern period Hannah Arendt um, being a kind of very important one but but I think it, it's I think it goes back to a scriptural vision particularly in the New Testament that's picked up on by folk like uh, Martin Luther King Jr has a kind of wonderful speech on this and this sense of I think power healed is power distributed or power shared and um, which is really about how do we enable more on more people to act with and for each other and therefore increase relational power and I think that's what we see as a kind of Pentecostal form of power if you like and I think it's there rooted um in the sense of I, one of my teachers John Zazoulis who's a who's a Greek Orthodox theologian and he had a great line that where the spirit is there is communion and that sense of all the time I think through the New Testament that that action of the spirit in a kind of 1 Corinthians 13 to generate koinonia fellowship or communion with others what we're seeing is the creation of um communities of relational power who are able to act with and for each other and then help kind of transform the world into a more just and loving place a more shalom like place and so that's I think it's important to recover that sense now I think in a fallen world there's always a kind of dialectic if you like between relational power and unilateral power uh, we need forms of unilateral power to restrain evil that's a kind of Augustinian point um we could say more about that and but th there's tended to be an over focus on unilateral power and therefore the power of the state particularly in the modern period um and an under focus on on the importance and possibilities of relational power you know it seems as though Christianity along with you know all of the world religions if you look back historically have journeyed um as inseparable partners with the body politic um from its conception until now you know mm. being a person of faith politics is unavoidable I guess if you will so how do we how do we talk about God and talk about politics without mutually binding them together or is that even possible so I I I mean I perhaps I take slightly controversial view on this but I I don't I don't think it's possible yeah I think if we just at a kind of linguistic level all our talk of God is inherently political talk and I would conversely say all our political talk has some, at least some connection to theological talk or talk of God. Um, and so think about, you know, divine sovereignty, the kingdom of God, um, even our very churchy words like Ecclesia, where we derive the word church from is, was a public assembly of the people to deliberate about the good of the city. 
and words like liturgy or liturgy it's a public service of the people for the good of the municipal our, 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 our scriptural language, our theological language, how we talk about divine human relations is suffused with political speech. Why? I would argue New Testament writers in particular, and, and it goes goes all the way back in, 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 in the Old Testament as well, you can't talk about divine human relations outside of political talk because you're talking about the formation of forms of common life. And that's the our fundamental nature of politics is the art of association, the ability to come together with others, not kill, coerce, or cause to flee, but form some kind of shared life. And, and fundamentally, and this is the kind of creational insight, we're not individual monads. And this goes against a, a deeply modern understanding of politics, going back to someone like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes in the, in the 17th century. But this idea that we're basically individuals who then contract together and the image of the contract is key there it's kind of individual legal joining where we give up some of our individual freedom to enjoy certain benefits uh, together that's a that's a deeply kind of unscriptural anthropology understanding what it means to be human rather we're inherently interdependent mutually vulnerable creatures who cannot survive, let alone thrive, without others. So if I need others to simply live, let alone live well, I've got to have some kind of common life with them. And therefore, that's a political life. And that's, that's you know, one of the kind of first formulations of that um, in terms of political philosophy was Aristotle and just this sense of we are inherently political animals, i.e., I cannot exist without others, and therefore there's got to be some common life between us. And therefore, then all sorts of questions about, well, what's the quality and character of that common life? How are we going to order that common life? What ends or goods are we seeking for that common life? And that that divine human relationship is a form of common life. It takes a particular form. It's a political life. And therefore, I just don't think you can talk of God and talk of politics are, are kind of sutured together. You can't separate them. Um, and I think we get into all sorts of problems when we try and separate them and it causes all sorts of confusions. And then we have weird ideas about some other political things we do over here. And then there's Christian things we do over here. And I'm like, no, we need a we need a, a, an understanding of that to be a Christian is to be a particular kind of political animal. I don't being a political animal is not something I do kind of as an appendix to being a Christian, being a Christian and loving neighbors and loving God means I'm existing in the world politically in a particular way as against other kinds of ways. And I think that's part of the problem. I, I sometimes my wonderful colleague Stanley Havas, you know, is, I think is we, we've kind of had a long running argument about this, but I, I think it's not really about a social ethic. What we needed teaching is a political ethic. It's a particular way of being political. And I think part of the problem we've seen today is a failure to teach that as if we can somehow teach social ways of being a Christian separate from political ways of being in the world. And that that opens the door and renders the church captive to all sorts of deeply destructive ways of political being political rather than uh, properly Christian ones. So since politics and theology 
cannot be separated. We can either resist it or, or utilize it. So let's talk specifically about the democratic form of, of government. You wrote, mm -hmm. to move beyond merely sticking Band-Aids on structural problems, churches need to be involved in a wider form of democratic politics. The church involvement is forms a highly participatory, often um, agonistic forms of democratic politics. And it's necessary because it forces local churches to recognize their need of others and to own in participation of their welfare and intrinsically bound up in the welfare of the demos. Um, how do we participate in a healthy way? Um, how right. do we participate in this way where obviously it can't be separated, but then we, we obviously see the extremes of when mm -hmm. those two things are um, mutually accepted and move forward, as we alluded to earlier, talking about Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, I, obviously, this is a kind of crucial question for our day, and I think the, the plausibility of the gospel as good news is bound up in how we answer this question, you know, because one of the big, biggest drives of people, particularly young people leaving the church, is this over-identification with Christianity, which rightly or wrongly they see as completely identified with a particular ideological stance, um, rather than the identification of Christianity with particular ways of constructing more just and generous forms of common life in which the church can contribute so the question then of how how can christians as kind of families and individuals and then also churches as congregations um, contribute to the formation of more just and generous forms of common life i think there are multiple multiple ways of doing that and and one in particular I've looked at is community organizing as a way of building kind of democratic coalitions. But I think there are a number of kind of stances, we might say, that could be drawn out for how one goes about doing that. I think in the contemporary context, attempts to control the space so that uh, Christianity, you know, the churches seem to kind of um, be the dominant force that's going to feel awkward to a lot of people and, and and a lot of christians are nervous about that for good reasons since, since the way that's often been destructive and, and i would say cooperative baptist fellowship you've got good form on being nervous and resisting to that kind of mode in in christendom years um but but so how do we build coalitions and there's a certain moral authority in working together with others to address shared problems in 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 democratic ways um uh yeah how are we going to look after old people how are we going to what does uh, good care for the young look like um decent health care how, how, how are we going to think about these kinds of questions with others rather than here's the christian way and everyone else got to kind of conform to that so i think there's something there about genuinely a coalitional approach um i think the other thing is crucially begins by listening uh, if I'm listening, I'm not killing you. If I'm listening, I'm saying to you, you matter. You've got something to say. You have a biography beyond simply your ideological commitments. Um, and therefore, listening is a fundamental mode of respect and recognition, uh, which there isn't a lot of in the contemporary context. I don't have to agree with you. I don't have to like what you're saying. But I, I am, by listening to you, taking you seriously as a person who's not reducible to, to an ideological checklist. Um, so I think listening, beginning with listening is key. Uh, and then um, 
I think recognizing that humans are complex creatures with multiple loyalties and people can come up with answers to their problems which you might find abhorrent or you know infuriating but you can still take seriously the problems that they're trying to address so a, a good example of me and there has been a tendency amongst certain circles particularly in academic circles to kind of dismiss all trump supporters of xen xenophobic or racist this and the other and i'm like i don't have to agree with the answers that a lot of trump supporters come up with but i can take seriously their real questions and problems they're wrestling with that that they might have come to these conclusions as the best way or think trump is the best way to address them i think trump and the political class around him is an entirely separate question from the supporters and the question of how we um how we come to confront how we come to address or, or provide answers for things is different from the problems we're wrestling with and so i think there's a way in which we have to abide with the problem rest take time to understand the problem that, that is affecting people's lives before we jump to conclusions about the answers they're giving and so i think there's coalition um, listening uh, taking time to understand the problems even if we disagree with the solutions and realizing that those two things don't have to be conflated um, creates a space, I think, for a more humane politics. Uh, yeah, so that would be, I don't know if you want me to say more on that. Well, I think we can go a little deeper there. Yeah, I think we can work out of this thought with the assumption that the foundation of Christianity is a love for God and love for neighbor. Mm. Um, but we know that's not always the case among all Christian traditions. Um, in its best form, uh, democracy um, uh, is in the hands of the people, and people seek to resolve those things that ail us socially. Um, you might could call this humanitarianism, uh, and you argue in the book humanitarianism is not explicitly a Christian ethic, but uh, neither is it opposed to Christian ethic. It sits in an ambiguous relationship of being a Christ-haunted and Christ-forgetting moral and political vision through incorporating and resignifying antecedent forms of political theology it suffers many of the characteristic uh, deformations that affect christian approaches to addressing the relationship between poverty and privilege so maybe let's go there like how okay. how how might christians utilize uh, a democracy um, as a as a form of or as a means of uh, of loving our neighbor right so yeah i think it's important so what i mean just that that quote you is a chapter on humanitarianism where i'm actually critiquing humanitarianism because i think a lot of christians think oh well i don't want to do the nasty polarizing politics so i'm going to do the kind of nice humanitarian service provision feed the homeless and this kind of stuff that's great that's that's there's lovely things to do but that's not politics and, and and i think a lot of particularly kind of more liberal progressive people get confused about that um uh, that's service provision, um, that's meeting basic needs, that is a kind of humanitarian intervention, but it's not a political intervention. And part of the problem when we collapse Christian politics into humanitarianism is we ignore questions of power, we ignore kind of differences in, in agencies, who can act and who can't act. We end up with kind of patron-client relations um, rather than genuine fellowship or mutual communion um and so uh i think 
part of what I'm trying to think through in that chapter is a move beyond a humanitarian service provision paradigm to a genuinely political one in which then I mean, that that kind of insight that if all are made in the image of God and all can only realize who they are in God through acting with and for others, then certain things follow from that. They've got to be able to speak freely to be able to have shared speech with others. They've got to be able to come together with others freely. So freedom of association as well as free speech. Um, and uh, the, there's got to be kind of certain um, the, the rule of law. So it isn't just the rule of the one, the few, or even the many, but how do we come together to determine the good of the whole? Uh, and this sense then of, I don't think Christian, I don't think democracy is necessary to practice Christianity, but democracy enshrines certain kinds of a, a, a set of deeply Christian commitments, one of which is the rule of law. Um, you know, it's there from the Old Testament on. We're, we're not ruled by fiat uh, we're not uh, ruled by an oligarchy or even a rule of priests um, it's it's the giving of the law in the context of covenant is the paradigm of good rule and the constant renewal of the of the body politic of the community comes through the restatement of the law and that recommitment to a covenantal set of relationships so it's not law by itself without covenant or covenant itself without law it's both together and that sense then of uh, that, that is the context in which people can exercise their agency um, with them for others and therefore become who they are in God uh, and who they are as creatures and who they're destined to be in Christ. And I think that that sense of what does that what does that mean um, in terms of how we order our order our polities and then shape our life together uh there's there's manifold kind of repercussions to that that i think christians have followed through on and particularly in the 17th 18th century saw you know big debates about this but but this this sense you, you might say christianity christianity favors um technically a theocracy which we often hear as rule of clerics but actually in in the kind of radical reformation out of which baptists come it, it was this sense that there is no master but god so if god is king and no other no other human can appoint themselves king uh if god is king um, and we're all subjects to god you can't exclude me from the community god is calling into being uh, i should have a say in that and so things like congregationalism as a form of polity as a way of self-organizing the church rather than rule by a bishop you know these are important insights of the radical affirmation that fed into what we understand by democracy today um and so the people should have some say and agency in determining their shared form of life whether that's a church congregationalism whether that's in their local community or whether that's in the nation state um and and that that any form of polity should be rule governed rather than dictated to it should be um built on shared covenants promising together and building trust together and that takes a certain kind of cultivation in virtue and a certain cultivation of the quality character of our life together so i think lots lots of things follow from this in in and which we might put under the heading of democracy 
but in theological frameworks we tend to kind of hive off in other spaces like ecclesiology or missiology or the, and I, I think I'm trying to kind of say look, let's let's put them all back together again and see that this is a this is what it means to be a, a Christian understanding of being a political animal as one who loves God and neighbor must necessarily entail a particular understanding of how to do politics together with others. So I would love nothing more than to completely nerd out with you for the next little <laughs> bit on um, all of these things. But I'm, I'm, you know, this is this book is a fabulous theological and philosophical framework for seeing the connection between our theology, our politics, and and our way of life. However, for those listening to this, while they might be thinking at the same level, um, they're shepherding and leading people who think mm -hmm. at a level of what they're. Uh, politicians and slanted media outlets tell them they ought to think about all these mm. things. So how do we, I guess, to kind of wrap up our conversation, how, how do we do spiritual formation um, on the interwoven relationship between politics, theology, and common life mm. without it leading to partisanship? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I, well, I'm not averse to partisanship per se in terms of because we can make a distinction between partisanship and polarization so partisanship you know we will some people be more there should be more market there should be more state polarization where there's a fundamental metaphysical ontological divide that anyone who takes the democrat view is just going to hell and you know guaranteed going to hell and any, or anyone who takes the republican view is inherently a righteous being um that's 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 a kind of polarized uh, 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 metaphysical uh, politics, a highly ideological one, rather than, you know, I have a different judgment about tax differential policies, rather mundane issue to you. That's perfectly, well, that, 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 that's, that's as it should be, as it were. Um, so I think it's important to make that kind of distinction. But, but I think in terms of kind of practical pastoral issues, I think one of the problems at the moment is we, you know, I think pastors have a very tough time. Obviously, they're, they're competing with Fox News or MSNBC and, and the kind of news feeds people are getting through Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. And so how do you cut through that, which is and, and recognize that people have paid a lot of money to seduce people, particularly Christians, into some kind of form of ideological checklisting rather than uh and a kind of thoughtless reaction um and and certain people benefit from that so we, we have to recognize we have to help people recognize that this isn't neutral this isn't just the way things should be they they themselves people are making money off them taking this view it's it's it's, it's a highly manipulative system that's rigged to get people to be mobilized in a certain way so that's getting people to kind of wake up to how they're that a lot of people are making money off them taking these kinds of positions um is one thing i think the other thing is that the ways in which our news feeds are structured are constantly abstracting us and distracting us from the actual reality of the lives we lead so yes there is the kind of great sortition where we're we're tending to live in ideologically homogenous enclaves but i don't think that's true of everyone and i still even within that there are differences of view 
and the reality is that you know I, I lived in North Carolina uh, for the past 10 years and, and we have this strange thing called freezing rain this kind of mad form of precipitation we don't have in the UK thankfully um, and when that comes down the electricity inevitably goes off uh, and it doesn't matter what you know what political flavor or religious flavor my norm my neighbors are we happen to have gas for our oven they all have electricity we make the soup we kind of do that side of things you know or if my kids need picking up from soccer one of them my neighbors will quite happily go pick them up or if the hurricane comes through we kind of help each other out the reality is that our lives are interwoven with people who we radically disagree with politically um, and conversely people i profoundly agree with on 99.9 percent .9 of issues turn around and stab me in the back quicker than i can blink an eye so ideological kind of ideological conformity is no guarantee that someone's going to treat you well uh, often they'll treat you even worse um, than abuse you and ideological difference and political difference doesn't mean that you can't treat people well and treat them like neighbors who on whose life you're dependent because that's actually the reality of your life your life does depend on them you know watch what happens when the hurricane comes through so i think there's a there's a way in which pastors have a tough job to kind of help people see and become attuned to and attend to the actual life they're living and their actual neighbors and often that's a much more kind of reframing politics locally rather than this way our political imaginations are sucked into a hyper polarized national level or state level which actually divorce us abstract us and then turn us against our more proximate neighbors um and so i think that's a, that's a cre kind of relocalizing politics as a therapy for this polarization um i think is a is a is a key thing and then and 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 literally old-fashioned things like you know in the in the anglican tradition we have rogation rogation sunday where you walk the boundaries of the parish but but the sense of how do we regain a sense of where do we live rather than this media saturated abstracted vision of understanding where we live you you've got to connect and and that's part of what it means to be a follower of jesus christ who was god incarnate who lived and died and rose again in a body form in a particular place amongst particular people bodies matter places matter relationship in places amongst these people in this place matter to what it means to truly love god and the neighbor and therefore how do we reconnect to that as a therapy for a highly commercial media saturated world which really wants to exploit us and extract us from that so they can more easily manipulate us into deeply destructive ways of living together the book is christ and the common life our guest is dr luke brotherton stay connected with luke by following him on social media and check out listen organize and act podcast luke we're grateful for your willingness to make time for this conversation and thank you for calling us to see democratic politics thus conceived as a work of love absent love and it does not work absolutely absolutely great to be with you Annie. thank you so much for the invitation before we wrap up we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors baptist seminary of kentucky are you looking for a bible study resource for your church responding to an invitation from the cooperative baptist fellowship of virginia baptist seminary of kentucky has produced bible study resources that is available for free of charge the study title faithful curiosity five-week study of luke and acts deals with three passages from luke and two passages from acts 
It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.